Hello and welcome along to our special edition podcast series here on The World Game. I'm your host Lucy Zellich and joining me in the studio, it's a very warm welcome to SBS Chief Football Analyst Craig Foster. Nice to see you, Foz. Yes, hello. And alongside him, it's great to have the company of fellow SBS analyst Marco Rudan. Rudes, good to see you. You too, Lucy. Uh, gentlemen, there is plenty to discuss today, but um, I want to start with the appointment of Bert van Marwijk. And Foz, you made your thoughts very clear via a blog recently, which we'll get to in a moment. But Rudes, I want to start with you and firstly your reaction to his appointment and, of course, his latest interview and the comments he made in that. Yeah, so prior to um, the announcement of, of Bert, as coach, it's interesting thereafter that it's quite clear now that the FFA have decided it to be a short-term appointment. Um, it would have been nice. I think the public would have would have loved to have known, you know, the future plans for you know who's going to be taking taking our, our soccerers forward, whether it be short-term, long-term, or, or whatever the case may be. So it's clear with Bert that they've gone short-term now. That changes everything in terms of uh, having you know, a discussion which you can still have an opinion on the matter. Clearly they've gone with a coach that has success and has, you know, gotten results in a World Cup, as he did in in Holland in 2010. He coached Saudi Arabia, clearly, um, and understands the way the Socceroos play. And he has, you know, knowledge about the way uh, they play. And, And that's, I guess, it gives him an upper hand on other coaches that they have spoken to or spoke to. Now, we don't really know exactly who they spoke to because they haven't clearly come out and, and said as such. But, you know, some big names were, were, were bandied around, um, you know, and uh, it, it's interesting to, to note that if, in fact, they did speak to some of these coaches who were willing to take um, the, the Socceroo job on, not just short-term, but also full, full-time and, and long-term, so in, in terms of Bert, so he does, you know, he, he ticks those boxes if that's what you're, if that's what you're looking at. My my only problem is one that it is short term, and two, the uh, amount of work that our, you know, the coach prior in Ange had put into making the Socceroos clearly um, having a clear identity and 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 uh, being able to understand what kind of uh, football he, he was trying to promote. Is this a forward or backward step? And for me, it's a backward step, okay? Only because of it, one, being short-term, and, and I don't think uh, particularly with the interviews that he's had and speaking to, um, you know, certain journalists. And, and I will say that uh, having watched yours, Lucy, it was a very, very good interview. Uh, you asked the hard-hitting questions and... You know, yeah, I think he was a little bit unstable in a couple of uh, a couple of those um, answers as well. I just think that he, he understands what his short-term fix is going to be, and for him, it's clear. It's about getting through to the next round, and I don't necessarily have anything against results because I think every coach wants to win, and that, that's that's fair enough. But it's it's the manner in which we uh, he's trying to do that. You know, we, we've come a long way in in finding an identity within our game. And I'm not sure if that's going to be clear, you know, um, in the World Cup. And that's the biggest stage. That's where all eyes are going to be on, you know, all the top nations in the world, particularly ours. And it's it's a great opportunity to make a statement in terms of where we're at as a footballing nation. 
so many of those comments that you've made now, Rudes, were reflected and summed up best in Van Marwijk's answer, uh, Foz. And at the very top of the interview, I asked him, in your discussions with Football Federation Australia, did they give you any guidance or any instructions as to the playing style and the expectations there? And he came back and he said no. Now, when Rudes is talking about football identity, this seems to be a sticking point for a lot, but obviously not for the governing body. And some of the comments that you made in your blog were the appointment of Bert van Marwijk as Socceroos coach is a lost opportunity that leaves many questions hanging. Where exactly are we headed and is there a plan for our future football? Thousands of coaches have been trained in a particular fashion. Hundreds of clubs have been encouraged to play in a particular way according to the national direction. And now, without articulating reasons why or the research and thinking behind, FFA have made a very significant change. Why have they made this change false? Well, you, you have to ask them that. Um, but <clears throat> From uh, your perspective? Well, the thing is, I don't know why they've made the change. I just have identified that they've clearly made a change. So um, it's not a change I agree with. Um, what, why, what, why don't you agree with it? Well, the first question is, should Australia have a clear picture of what we think our, f- our future football looks like? And should we try and then articulate through um, the, the starting basis of our coaching licences into the grassroots <coughs> community uh, through the junior national teams so that should we have a consistent style of play right through all of our national teams, including the senior? Um, and should we be trying to have a consistent approach that we, thinks, we think provides a competitive advantage? That's the underlying question. And obviously, as people know, I've been arguing that we should for the last 15 years. But what's interesting is there seems to have been quite a lot of support for Van Marwijk's um, uh, appointment, uh, which I find interesting. And I think is probably because there was a lot of fatigue by the end, which is one reason why Ange Postacoglu left. Uh, A lot of the community were fatigued with, um, um, I guess, the play of the team, uh, some of the issues over the last two years since the Asian Cup and so on. And I think in the end it was a sort of amicable separation, right? And I think that fatigue is mirrored in people saying, well, um, we're just going to get a guy who's short-term, who's going to do whatever he likes, and we think that he can manage Australia out of the group. I hope he does because the benef- it would be so beneficial for the game in this current time when we're in deep, deep trouble in terms of strategy in a competitive landscape. We've got other major sports giving huge challenges that we didn't have only three years ago. Off the back of the Asian Cup, I think we've completely messed up that legacy in, in terms of being able to gain momentum and move to a different level of the game. Actually, arguably, we've moved backwards. So... Uh, I think we need to get out of the group. But my question is, at what cost uh, of just going and allowing someone like Van Marwijk to do whatever it is that he likes? And indeed, um, he's he's confirmed, with I, I think it's extraordinary, that the governing body and this committee that they put together at no point even asks him about the way that he intends to approach it. If... And, clear, and as as Mark said, and 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 it was made publicly, that he apparently knows the Socceroos so well because he played against us. He then should at least have a view as to what he intends to do with the team. Um, and 
those questions certainly should have been raised to him within that um, committee scenario. So the other question is that I have is, does this mean... So why was a committee necessary? <clears throat> why did people feel, why did the board of FFA decide that they needed a committee to make a decision? Because there's nobody within the organisation capable of making that decision. Isn't that where your immediate thought goes to? When you look at the amount of money that they're spending on consultancy alone, which is in excess of $20 million, you start to wonder why are we having to constantly go externally in order to make these decisions when you should have people employed within your administration that are able to execute that. And then we're, we're in a similar situation now because the government has just announced that they've pledged a further $4 million to assist with the Women's World Cup bid for 2023. And much of that money, it was stipulated in the press release, is going to go towards consultants and them being able to prepare this mm -hmm. final bid to FIFA. That's a problem in itself. But when it, I mean, going back to, to the appointment of Van Marwijk, I what I'd love to know is, from your perspective, why do you see it as something that's taking us backwards? Okay, so just on that committee, the thing is, which may be taking us backwards, the, the question I have is, even in a club or an international environment, um, coaches can come and go um, reasonably regularly. It, um, second to that, it was no secret that Ange Postacoglu was considering going. It was in the media for a matter of months. Uh, but even irrespective of that, I would have thought that you have a succession plan in place or you have a clear view of what it is that you think is going to occur, particularly when you're trying to get all your national teams to play in a, in a similar manner. Therefore, I was actually surprised when they come out and said we need a whole committee in order to make a decision because I was, well, we were all sitting around for several months thinking, well, who would you put in the role? Now, if you were paid to, to uh, think about that process, I would have thought that you'd have a, a fair idea already. So uh, a committee was put in place to create a short-term appointment, um, which is actually far easier than creating a long-term one. Uh, it needs far less thinking. Um, so does that mean that a committee is going to be now used for all the national team coaching positions? Or why was it necessary just for this one? I, I simply don't understand it. Was it because the board felt that they needed the imprimatur of a committee so that they're beyond um, a criticism if something doesn't go well? Uh, in which case I think that the former players who sat on that committee need to really give that some thought in future. Uh, but um, I don't know why the reason was. But if the next coaching appointment doesn't have a committee, then I would want to know why. Why was it necessary now and why, uh, why is it not necessary in future? Because there's appointments across all of the national teams uh, on a reasonably regular basis and um, I'm not sure anymore who's in control of those and whether there is a strategy across them. What it also raises then is this concept of um, uh, our own coach education. So... After um, what we've had probably uh, uh, 13 years, yeah, uh, season 12, so uh, 12 years, roughly around a decade of our new coaching licences and so on, that's a long time for people to be in the uh, national junior coaching roles as well as also in the professional competition. And it appears at this stage, whilst four years ago I was concerned because of the evolution of the A-League, that in the early years I thought pretty much was a write-off, quite honestly. But, I mean, promotionally great and the growth great. I'm talking about the technical level of the A-League. And then um, 
and then it certainly grew, but it only had just started to grow four years ago. And I wasn't sure whether um, an international appointment was was not still necessary. Now I would say you would question how we're going in terms of producing coaches. Now I think it's the opposite. I would be saying if I was the local coaches, I'd be saying, okay, well, why is this the case? Was Tony Popovich capable of doing so? He was out of a job at the time. He's an Asian Champions League winner. Uh, and do we have other young coaches who are currently available uh, and capable? Uh, and f- finally, this is why I said in the blog, there's a lot of questions I answered. And finally, what does this mean for the long-term appointment going forward? If essentially what this appointment's done is thrown out the national direction, this appointment says we don't really care what's happened in the last four years in terms of approach to the game. We're going to appoint someone who and give him no direction and not even ask the question about how he's going to play. Therefore, we've completely thrown out the approach of the last four years. What does that mean for the approach going forward? Does that mean now um, that, that we don't have a, a national direction in terms of playing the game? It appears that we don't. Another school of thought in this, Roods, is that because of the unique circumstances that we were put in, given that Postacoglu departed, I mean, obviously you'd have to expect that FFA had some inkling that he was going to leave. When the rumours started, they would have had to have known that there was going to be a time that arrived when he would be leaving, and they didn't want to get left on the back foot. They were, because it took months for them to find a, a, a suitable candidate. They've deemed Van Marwijk the suitable candidate. FFA came out, Stephen Lowy came out and said that the moon's aligned because he left his job with Saudi Arabia and then became available and was then subsequently FFA's top candidate. One school of thought is, can we treat this as an isolated incident whereby because they were forced to find a coach and time was against them, that in these circumstances, everything else has to take a back seat for the moment? No, uh, and that, that may be the line that uh, they've been giving us, but I tell you now, for a fact, they knew Postacoglu, six months prior to him announcing his departure, was thinking about doing so. So it's, it's not new news. You know, there, there was talks about, you know, Ange not being comfortable with what was going on uh, within the Federation. Clearly, he, you know, was put out of line uh, in Perth, um, you know, when I think they were playing Iraq. Um, you know, that was the collective qualifier. bargaining agreement yeah. disputes. And mm. I think ever since that moment, you think, you know, it, it led to a pretty rocky road between the relationship between Ange and, and David Gallup. But like I said, there was a lot of talk in amongst the inner sanctum of the Socceroos about Ange not, you know, looking at... Uh, being at a World Cup, he clearly wanted to to see out his contract and, and qualify for the World Cup. But whether or not he was going to be there was a totally different matter. So they knew what was going on. So they had a lot of time there to come up with a plan B, C or otherwise. And for them to say, this has taken us by a complete shock, is, is not uh, normal because they knew. They knew about it. Um, the question, though, was, you know, some of the, some of his staff members didn't actually know if Andrew was going to pull the trigger and leave and walk. But that's a different story to them knowing that the, the situation was as it, as it was, that Andrew was looking at, at departing, uh, whether they qualified or not qualified. All right? And, and, and that's, that begs the question, what did you do in between that time? 
So it wouldn't have been out of order for the FFA to go and seek, interview and speak to potential coaches, knowing that that was the situation anyway. And I think Andrew would have been okay with that because he made it pretty clear to those involved within the setup. We find ourselves in this position now where, as you mentioned, the world's aligned and here we are. I mean, at the time, Bert was still coaching Saudi Arabia, so he, he would have been you know, out, of, out of the question, right? Uh, but there are a lot of good, good coaches out there, and, and I guess it just so happened that the timing of it all worked out for our, our current manager, and, and I guess that's the way we're going to go with it forward. But like I said, the, um, the communication from the FFA to the general public should have been, I think, a lot more clear in terms of what they were planning on doing. I mean, you talk about a national team, and it is, it is the, you know, the, the people's team. Right? The Socceroos is a national brand. And, and, and the fans are probably the most important stakeholders when it comes to the Socceroos, notwithstanding the players, obviously, and everybody else. But the fact that there was nothing coming from the FFA to hear post-appointment that well, is this is going to be short-term, you know, it, it, it almost beggars belief, I think, anyway, because there are so many people out there that are so passionate about where the game is heading, not just with the Socceroos. I think they, they're entitled to have some kind of answers. It would have been easy to say, look, we're looking at someone short-term because it's probably pretty obvious, and, and, and Luke Cassidy has come out and said it in a radio interview, that they are going to announce before the World Cup who the Socceroos coach is going to be after the World Cup. So there are many theories being bandied about at the moment, one of them being Graham Arnold. I mean, to take us back further, at the time where there was speculation and they were considering who was going to be appointed, we saw names like Klinsman being bandied about, Mancini, of course, then we heard about that ridiculous $4 million price tag and then having to bring an entourage of 10 assistants with him, which, you know, understandably is a little bit ludicrous. Klinsman's name was being thrown around, Slaven Bielic. Van Gaal. Van Gaal. Why on Bert Foz? Was it purely financial? Well, I don't know how many of those names were in the frame. I don't know who was on the final list, apparently, of three. But what I know is when you saw those names, you knew that a complete change of direction was happening um, because um, several of those names would have no interest in continuing the, way, the path that Australia had been going down. And even Van Haal in, in recent years uh, has changed a great deal, like Van Marwijk. So one of the, one of the issues um, that I had with Van Marwijk was the way that he also um, had his uh, Dutch team play. But that's because I'm still tied to a certain philosophy and I believe that Australia should do like Chile. I believe that we are... And this is the question I raised at the start. Should we, as a country, have a consistent way of playing across all of our national teams, which clubs may or may not take on board, but uh, all of the coaches can at least be taught in the C and B licence? This is essentially what's happening now. And then by the A licence, it should be that you have complete autonomy in whatever it is that you believe in. Uh, and then uh, by the pro licence is about becoming a professional coach, and a professional coach can do whatever they like according to the philosophy of the club. But um, what you're at least doing is uh, equipping uh, coaches with a clear view of the game and ability to bring that to life and giving them the opportunity to one day actually be a national coach within your style. Um, I think that small countries like it. I, I think that the answer to that question is an unequivocal yes. The reason is because we are always against 
usually against much larger nations, um, and those who are of World Cup winning level, which has to be our ultimate dream, uh, have far greater leagues, far greater resources, far greater player pools, and many advantages over us. We, in my estimation, need to have a competitive advantage. We need to do something or many things different. And the foremost to that is our way of playing and our consistency. So in my view, if we go World Cup cycles, World Cup to World Cup, just playing according to whatever it is the coach wants to do, we do nothing different. That's what every other country does. There's been eight countries win the World Cup now. And good luck if you think that Australia's going to win it doing it that way. So, so well, sorry to interrupt, but what could, I mean, given that scenario and just the list of names that I mentioned, which all we know was speculated yep. on, what what would you have what would you have expected FFA to do if of those candidates none of them play the style of football that we want to align ourselves? Well, with? you have to find the candidates who do. So you know you would have a different list of candidates. Um, and there's basically but that pool becomes smaller and smaller, Foz. Okay, well that's why I raised about our, us producing our own ones now as well. And so I think the heat should now, after this period of time, I think you've got to start questioning um, coach education. You've got to start questioning whether we're bringing enough of the coaches through our A-League environment. Um, and all of those aspects of the game has to be put under scrutiny um, because that, that, we need that, them to, we need the them to deliver. Thing? Is that yeah. the biggest thing that comes out of this? Is the coaching education oh. and a slight on that? Um, One of? Well, I think the coach education has come a very long way. Um, all I'm saying is um, you, might, you might need to look at um, the integration between that and then the national team um, pathways and whether enough of that information is getting across. So there's, there's many different questions, right? Um, I think there's a, a good question around the, the coaches that have been recruited into the A-League environment and the Youth League environment and then back into the NPL. So in other words, are we creating the pathways and getting enough people through with enough competency to have a stream of coaches coming through now who are competent to take these roles? If we don't, we have a problem. Um, we may well still be in a transitional phase, and the answer might be that in the next five years we think that's going to occur, but I, I don't know who's asking the question. Um, most of the only, or the only research really that occurs in the game here in Australia at the moment is coming out of the PFA, who've done research into the A-League, into the W-League, into all the players moving overseas. All of these issues and answers should inform the work and the decisions that you make in our professional game. What does the A-League look like? And like, the grandma, for instance, came out recently and said, the A-League's not a developmental league. I thought that was uh, a comment that uh, should never have been let um, let lie by those in charge of the strategy of the professional game uh, for many, many reasons. But it clearly is a developmental league, right? Um, until such time as we become... It's a developmental league of players. It's a developmental league of coaches, right? Otherwise, Graham Arnold will not be in line and I think the likely candidate to be taking the World Cup. So how is it not a development league if Graham Arnold is to become the national coach now um, prior to the next World Cup? Was he not developed within our A-League environment? Was he yes or no? Obviously he was. Therefore, it is a development league. I think it was also made in reference to, you know, the big topic of conversation at that time was about youth players not being included in squads enough. Oh, exactly. Um, and, and you can look at it several ways. Um, you know, you can start to argue that perhaps at that youth development league, and you both would know better than I would, and I'd love to get into conversations from your perspective as coaches, what's going on at that level in a moment. Mm. 
but so much of it is our youth system is fractured. And when you talk about, you know, these sorts of football philosophies being adopted by all the state federations and being filtered down to the grassroots, obviously that's not happening at the, at the, at the rate that we'd like it to. Yeah, so, OK, but the thing about that is you're talking about the youth players. That's exactly right. Um, but it is a developmental league for youth players. So my my. But comment... we're not seeing enough youth come through, yeah. Foz. And is no, that well, because right. of these A-league coaches not well, giving them a chance or is it because we're not producing these players? Well, in part, it's because people like Graham Arnold are saying, well, I'm, I have no imprimatur to use young players. It's not in my interest. And his club is not um, requiring that he do so. Um, he has the right to do whatever he wants, whatever Scott Barlow and the people of Sydney FC want him to do. That's the point. Because a coach in a professional club decides that he wants to make one strategy, that shouldn't become the strategy of the game, this is what I'm saying. That's when I thought the people at, at FFA who are in charge of the A-League or the professional game, or indeed the technical director who we very rarely, if ever, hear from, I thought the technical director should come out at that time and say, well, actually, Graham has the, every right to, to make whatever comment and coach him whatever way he wants, however... That is disappointing from the following aspects. Um, like um, Evidence uh, A is that, what about the 2006 generation? If you went through all of that team, at what age did they play in the NSL? I would have thought that it would be 16, 17, virtually all of them. But okay? are we just talking in cycles now in which we developed players during that period, but now we haven't seen the likes of these, you know, the Vadukas, the Kules, the, these sorts of players... Who would you say okay, but look are at the falling into that category? But it's not even accurate in relation to the current Socceroos. So what Graham might have said is Sydney FC is not a development club. I mean, you say, okay, fine, that's, that's, that's great. That's your philosophy, and clearly it is not, okay? Because a, a large number of the um, uh, youth players who are coming out of the youth teams there um, have left. I know, I coached a bunch of them, because they know after these comments that they have no opportunity to play first team. That's fine if that's what you have created. Wonderful, and you won a double, that's good for you. But that's very different from saying it's not a development league. Uh, if you look at this, if you went through the current Socceroos or the Socceroos squad that was won the Asian Cup, for instance, I'd like to know, I haven't done the study, but I'd like to know how many of them started at a young age in the A-League competition. I would imagine it would be a very, very high percentage. Rudes, you deal with a lot of youngsters. Um, in your time coaching in the NPL, winning a title with Sydney United, um, you know, you've had success at that level. What, where do you sit in terms of youth development? And from what you've seen, the players you've worked with, what seem to be the main problems? Yeah, just before, before I answer that, Lucy, in terms of what um, Fozzie was saying and Arnie, Arnie didn't make the top six at Sydney FC a couple of seasons back. Got a lot of pressure from Scott Barlow. So you talk about leadership, at least right or wrong, Scott has approached his coach and the staff and said, listen, not good enough. We're going to back you. We're going to keep you. But we want results. At this football club, it's about results. So Arnie... But is a club wrong to demand that from their coaches? A club can do whatever they want. Ultimately, you know, if that's what Sydney FC's branding is about, to be the best, biggest and best in Asia... You, you need to get results. You need to win trophies and then in order to, to play in the Asian Champions League and, and so forth. But Arnie has history of developing youth players at the Mariners, right? So that's not a question. At Sydney, however, and this is my biggest worry when he won the league by as many points as he did last year, is that that was, was going to be a template or a blueprint for all other clubs and coaches to adhere to. He broke all kinds of records. 
problem is when you break down that season and when you look at the squad and you look at the 11 or 12 players, majority of which played week in, week out, he decided to go with no players that could represent the young Socceroos or Ollieroos because they may be away on international duty or away with the national team. So he decided to go with an experienced team right, um, and rely on players who had been there and done that before. And it worked for him. So his recruitment was, was spot on. But there was just no youth and, he, and no one came through. Going back to what Fozzie said, the, the, the messages, and I had coached and have coached, players who've come through my club at Sydney United for five years who then went through the Sydney FC youth system and talking to them, they felt very frustrated that they weren't given an opportunity. No matter what they did, how well they played, um, you know, they just weren't going to get that opportunity because of the experience and the players that Arnie was relying on. And the, co- and the a comment from you would be great to know um, in terms of the, the, the quality and the skill level of these players. Did they deserve a shot, Roots? Yeah, some of them are very good players. You know, one thing that um, you know in the MPL, it's 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 not an easy league to play in. It's not an easy league to coach in either. Um, you know, when you're at the professional level, you you demand certain things from your players, and there are non-negotiables. You know, because it's it's professional. At that level, it's not. Players have to they school themselves throughout the day or they work, they have, they have mortgages to pay, some don't even turn up the training. So you need to put not just one plan together but three or four different training plans because you just know that there are going to be one, maybe two or more players who, who won't turn up for whatever reason. Now, you try to create a certain environment, that's fine and that's what we try to try to do. But at the same time, you have to also understand the players' point of view. You know, they're, they're coming back and turning around. And some of them, we've had a couple of experienced players like Penny Nickus and Nick Stavalakis in our, in our club who have been NPL players for, for, for a decade and are used to a certain thing. It's very hard to um, demand certain things from them when they know they're not in, that it's not their livelihood. They're not in a professional environment. Right? And that's one of the tough things. But certainly a lot of good young players who deserve an opportunity um, but having haven't been able to to receive that opportunity, one, because of a lack of opportunity. And and I've been speaking about this for a long time. It's a game of numbers. I mean, when Foz and I were were, making debuts at 16, 17-year-olds in the old NSL, there was the ability to to find a club much easier than what there is now for a 16, 17-year-old. I mean, I was at the Institute of Sport, like Foz was. I had five coaches... Um, asking me to to sign a a first-grade contract. Now, there there were four options in Sydney, right? When the Alex started, one of my biggest disappointments and regrets, and I remember speaking to Walter Bunyo about this as well, who was the chairman of, of Sydney FC, what does this mean for, when I had a look at the list of players that we signed, what does this mean for the young players? Where are our young players coming from? There is no youth competition, right? There's only one team representing Sydney, right? The, the whole dynamics had changed completely to what it was when we were coming through the system, you know, back in the early 90s or, or late 80s. It was, I really felt for, I mean, I, f- I thought to myself, if I'm a young 16, 17-year-old, what, what, ch- what, ch- what chance have I got to, to play in the top tier of Australian football when there is just no pathway? And the likes of Nicky Carlin and all these other guys had to go overseas and, and find a way and a means to, 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 to play a game they love. Fast-forwarding, as, as Foz mentioned, how much further have we come? Have we, well, a little bit, but not a lot. You know, I still have players, 18, 19-year-olds, who play a full season with me uh, or have played and then will knock on my door and say, Mark, thank you for the opportunity, but I'm going to walk away from this game. What reasons are they citing? Is it the lack of opportunity? Lack of opportunity. Um, they, they, 
you know, for a couple of seasons, you know, you you call respective coaches and you say, give this guy a, a look in, you know, let him have a, a week's trial, you know, see what you think about him. I, I think he's a good young player, you know, give him, and for whatever reason, they decide not to go with him or they do go with him. And after a year, they come back to our club anyway, because they find it so hard to break that wall down. Right. So the common theme is, from what I'm gathering here from your comments, is that it's the buck stops with the A-League clubs and the pathways uh, are so fractured at this point that irrespective of how well a player does, he's not going to get a look in because it's not the coach's priority at that respective club. So I would say the buck stops with the FFA. So in other words, what, what happens... The first question that we raised before is, is the A-League and the W-League actually a developmental league? That's And what is it there to develop? I think it's there to develop players, coaches, referees and administrators, all of whom we want to export and send to the top of the world. If Graham Arnold ends up in um, Europe as a coach, and I hope he does, I hope he does fantastically well, he's going to look back and say, well, that was a fantastic foundation for me to grow as a coach. Great. I was just looking on Wikipedia here, and it appears that he made his debut with someone um, Canterbury, Marrickville at the age of 17, okay, like the rest of us. So where are they now? They're not there. So my question is, do you leave that issue, which is an extremely important issue, to Sydney FC, or do you regulate for your competition? And this is one of the issues that many competitions have around the world. It's one of the reasons why people limit the nut or used to limit the number of foreigners. I know the EU changed that, but uh, still in... Uh, in England, you have to have a work permit if you're from outside the EU. They limit the number of foreigners playing. Um, they can, at times, legislate the number of young players who have to be in the squads and so on. So is that something that needs to be introduced here? It's a, it's a yes, very real possibility. Absolutely. Very real. Because mm. the problem is what it's shown at Sydney FC is if you take it out of the hands and just put it to the clubs, what other countries have already worked out is that they'll go for the most experienced teams ever and and the coach has every right to do so. Graham, uh, Graham has every right to do so at uh, Sydney C. As you said, it's to keep his job. So good luck. He ends up winning titles and ends up in Europe. Beautiful. But what does it do for us? What does it do for the game? Where are the next internationals coming through? This is a big issue that, for instance, uh, England is still facing, although just in the last couple of years they've been able to solve it in a different way to us. So let's just spend a minute talking about that. So what, what happened was the EPL came in, and because they want global branding, they allowed virtually any, any foreigners. They had no limit on it, right? You, you had a work permit to get to actually play there, which meant that your quality had to be a certain level, but I don't believe they ever had limits. That's why the lowest number of local players in any of the top five professionals leagues is in England. I think it's around 33 35%, something like that. So for the English national team to perform against Germany has been extremely difficult because there's only 30% of their entire league playing weekly. Not many of them travel outside. And therefore, the Germans have the opposite. 75% of all of their league are Germans, are playing regularly in, all, in, in top teams and therefore are capable of going and winning uh, in, um, in Brazil. Okay, so uh, it's difficult for them to wind that back in England, but... What happened there is their youth national teams are actually won several World Cups now, and the reason principally is because so much money flowed into the game, so many coaches came in and so much uh, quality and thinking came from abroad, Portuguese, uh, Spanish, they imported everyone. Uh, what happened is that work eventually comes out at the grassroots level, but that's not from a, a national plan. That's from, if you like, market forces. 
right? Billions of pounds going in. The best coaches are going to go there. Benitez comes in, he replaces all the Liverpool Academy, most of them with Spaniards, Spaniards put in, in place a, a modern methodology. So that a process has occurred over the course of the last 15 years, and all of a sudden they've got fantastic generations. We can't rely on that. So we have to understand the global context and work out how is it that we're going to do two things. That is, have a successful professional game, successful means here and in Asia, and be internationally competitive. And those two things can be difficult to juggle. And the the regulations that you put in your local professional game have to be at least partly uh, for the reason to create senior, national, experienced players who've had all of this development through our professional game. So what's happening at the moment is I think we've tipped the balance too far the other way. We've gone, the A-League clubs can do whatever it is they like. Uh, There's no regulations in terms of young players having any opportunities, as we all did, would never have become players, and and, uh, and that includes Graham. Uh, And our national teams are going to suffer in future simply because of that. One argument against that, Rudes, is that, I mean, I think Foz is right in terms of the buck should stop with FFA, but as it stands, it does stop with the clubs because they're able to exercise whatever judgment they like. For a man like Graham Arnold, it's, I want to win. I want to win titles. Can you necessarily put this on the coaches of these 10 A-League clubs and criticise them for not bringing in these youth players when their jobs, their livelihood and their careers are at stake? No, we haven't Not done that. All. We've said no. Not at all. But um, and again, it's again to bring up Graham Arnold. He, he's probably the best case in point because he started off his A League coaching career at the Central Coast Mariners, underfunded, no marquees. He had to think outside the box. He had no other choice but to, and and, and credit to him too because, from my understanding, he was probably the most proactive coach to go out to the Institute of Sport and have a real good eye on the young talent that's coming which through. Which we no longer have, by the way. So both of no. you came through the Australian <clears throat> Institute of Sport, which was renowned at that time mm. in that era for producing some of the best players we've ever seen mm. take to a football pitch in this country mm. and indeed around the world mm. in, in, in some cases. Then FFA took over and rebranded at the FFA, um, uh, I think it was the School of Excellency, mm-hmm. and then that collapsed. Now we have no real mm. isolated mm-hmm. pool of talent development in this country that's providing them with the resources and the kinds of coaching that you would expect would then see them go on and do great things. Now that that no longer exists, how much of that is a problem too? Yeah. Yeah, well, look, all A-League teams have to have their own academies and some started earlier than others. Uh, I don't think everyone is up and running as they should um, in terms of the non-Australian clubs. That's certainly, the onus certainly is on the each you know each of the respective uh, A-League clubs to try and get that up and running, um, in order for this to to be taken away and, and not spoken about the FFA uh, co COE situation. Um, but going back to what I was saying, you know, you because of the of, a, of certain external factors, you you need to try and find a solution to the problem that you've got. And clearly, he had his own problems at the Mariners and found solutions. Now, at Sydney FC, a lot of those problems that he had there aren't there, i.e. financial, right? So he was able to do things things differently. Having worked with the young Socceroos, um, and I remember the first camp that we attended or I attended in Bahrain, I didn't know 75% of those players, okay? And, and that's a problem. And we were talking about 18, 19-year-olds. 
and 75% of them I didn't even know. I, I was given the list um, and, and went there. I knew that Thomas, uh, Thomas Deng, George Blackwood played a handful of games. You know, there were, there were a, a few players like that, Anthony Kalik, who had had a bit of A-League experience. Stefan Mork. He wasn't uh, in that team, but he w- there were certainly probably only a handful of players who had A-League experience, which led to a, a big conversation amongst the staff in Bahrain, uh, trying to find answers as to why. And, and you know, you can talk about a lack of results and you can talk about a, a playing style. They're all relevant. They're all important questions. But the mere fact that these guys hadn't been in an environment that challenged them, right, was probably the most important reason as to why they weren't able or we weren't able to, to get through to the next round. For me, it was as simple as that because you saw a lot of guys who'd played NPL football um, or youth league football, players playing against their own ages. I'm not even talking about tactics here or, or systems and styles of play and, and changing you know, within the 90 minutes of, of a game. That's a totally different um, argument and discussion point altogether. But that was a big issue. It really was. And when you look at, you know, you know under-20 sides that are qualified and um, previously, one was that we, were, we played in Oceania, which made it somewhat easier to qualify for World Cups. Asia is a different uh, juggernaut altogether. Somewhat. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Somewhat, yeah. Um, now it's, it's a different dynamic, different beast altogether, playing in Asia, travelling away. And, 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 and these teams... You know, it's not just funding. You know, everyone talks about throw money and the problem will be solved. It doesn't work that way. Being of Croatian heritage and being there in November, having a look at the Croatian youth system, they're a dire straits. <laughs> they're a mess. Apart from one club, Dinamo Zagreb, they are an absolute mess everywhere else. It's just the fact it's, it's a cultural thing in, in that country where you are pretty much born with a ball at your feet. Okay, male, female, or otherwise, it doesn't really matter. It is is part of the culture, and you were born with a, a football club a banner in your in your house, and you've got no other reason but to support that. It's completely different here. I mean, we can go to so many different reasons as to why we, you know our youth development's not working, and why we're not developing as much. But I'd love to know I'll a possible go, theory. Yeah, look, I I agree. I think I think five foreigners are way too much. I think we need to go to three. That that's my own personal experience. I mean, in, in the NSL, we had we had three. Um, and it allowed and gave more opportunities to young Australians to, to play. There were more clubs, so more opportunities for the young players to, to, to receive their debuts and, and showcase their talents as well. And, you know, perhaps, <clears throat> you know, there were a lot of players back then who were given opportunities in today's world would have walked away from the game as well because of a lack of opportunity. And then you, you forego a massive talent. I'm not sure about you, Foz, but, you know, look at, you know, the amount of players that are playing, particularly Eight clubs back in 2005, 2006. I mean, mm. you're talking about 180 players, 180 so, contracts. So the integration yeah. then of the three-plus-one rule, which mm. a lot are advocating for, how mm. does that tie in with all of this, Foz? Um, I think that something to look at is um, is the number of foreigners. Yep, definitely. Um, the lack of youth is, is absolutely an issue. Um, and one of the problems is if the trend now is for experienced teams and limited amount of young players, um, then most coaches will take that opportunity. And if we're heading into an expansion um, time, which we certainly are, so not enough opportunities for players, everyone has been clear that we need further clubs in the competition. Um, but let's just say if that happens and if those clubs were to do the same thing, 
um, in this next expansion process without some guidance based on what's happened in the last five years, I think the problem would be exacerbated. Right? So now's probably a good time to get a handle on what's happening and how we need to progress in future. One of the, uh, the team um, that I had charge of a responsibility for a few years ago, which went to the national titles, New South Wales, where Daniel Azani was in, Joe Coletti um, and Costa Petrados, they're the only three players, I believe, who've had an opportunity in the A-League, um, two of which uh, uh, have done exceptionally well, was Joe and uh, Daniel. Uh, the rest of that team was an extremely talented team. That was a t- 11 of them went to the AIS. That was the team that went then to um, Chile. Under 17s. Yeah. Under 17s, yeah. we did that. Got outside yeah. the group and whatever. Um, but the remainder of those kids were no less talented than the generation that I was a part of coming through. And we all walked out of there. By the time we left the AIS, I had Sydney Croatia and Sydney Olympic saying, here's a contract come, and I end up going to Sydney Croatia. All of my friends from the AIS went to either one or the other. And trim, trimmers went back to Melbourne, to South Melbourne. And we walked directly into the NSL and started playing mm-hmm. within a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't occur anymore. So how we can make that occur uh, is but why a critical you, but question going forward. But why do you forward. think it doesn't occur? I want to go well, back to the, to the questions yeah. of why this we're issue. not developing yeah. youth anymore the at reason, the rate that we were. But the reason I mentioned that generation is because some people are saying, and coach, some of the players are no longer of the same quality. Okay, And what I'm saying is, no, I had responsibility for that team. That was a very talented team. And... A small section of them have proven their quality, and I believe that 85% of the rest could very comfortably play in the A-League. But they just haven't been given the opportunity to prove their quality? So people are saying the the young players are just not good enough. I disagree. Okay. Roots. Yeah. Yeah, I disagree with that as well. Having, you know, working with a lot of young players, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds who who train first team with us, the, the, the biggest difference, I think, I'm not sure why, and I think it was an issue and a big problem, why do we go and you know lower the age group for the Institute of Sport as well? That, that's probably the biggest issue. So, so when we came out of the Institute, we think we were 17 or whatever it was, Foz, right? And um, mm-hmm. we had that extra year experience. These kids now, they're also being billeted, right or wrong. Um, there is no football accommodation at the Institute of Sport. So the last few few years, the kids were, are going in there a lot younger, 14, 15, as opposed to when we were 16, 17. And... You know, we were, we were playing in, in a National Youth League. Um, there were a lot of senior players who dropped into that youth league, so you're playing against men as well. Uh, we also played in the local ACT league in the off-season, and you really knew what you were about. You know, I remember getting elbowed uh, a number of times against Marco Perinovic, right, who played in the NSL as well. Good but he was, Yeah, yeah. Okay, great, great header of the ball, yeah. Yeah, and a good... And can use good elbows elbow as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, very, it very was strong. It was tough. But yeah. you, you grew up very, very quickly. And I think it was only my third game when we played against Mark County and I had Franny throwing the same elbows, but yeah. at least I was better equipped to protect myself that way because I had experienced that against Franny the man. Franny be upset if I don't also say good player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He'll Franny, call me and say, oh, you yeah. said Marco's yeah. a good player. He wasn't a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And now, uh... <laughs> yeah, neither are That's either true. of you, yeah. let's be honest. But um, <laughs> what, what we were... Uh... <laughs> So that, that was that's an issue for me, Foz, right? The fact that they went younger. I wasn't overly and speaking to Ron Smith. I've, you know, he he also questions why they why they went to to that age because they are good players, Foz. They, they, they let's say they leave your academy and they walk into the Institute of Sport and they and they then further develop and they then 
why do only three out of 15 or 18 actually are, are, are right now playing when majority of which, or 90% of which, knowing that they were successful and, you know, particularly in a World Cup and actually qualified for a World Cup and did well, mm. why aren't more of these guys getting game time? And again, it comes down to numbers and the pressure on these coaches and the fact that there aren't opportunities for these guys as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of coaches do look to the Institute and they were calling Tony Bidmar and Orfuk Tale and, and asking for advice. And funnily enough, some of them would look for their advice. Um, and, and I know Ulfie and Vidya would turn around and say, well, why don't you guys have a look for yourselves? Right, come over here if you're really interested in these players. Have a look, speak to the likes of you know other coaches that work with them. You know, I'm not sure how many co- uh, calls you had, Fozzie. I mean, you, you'd work with these guys as well. How many other mm-hmm. coaches called you and said, "What's Daniel Azani like? Is he worth taking a punt on?" Who Should was? Who was at Sydney right? FC? Also, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, are you? Were you getting those calls from uh, A League coaches? No, I had uh, some calls from the youth league coaches who were taking them, uh, who I knew, but um, no. Mm. So what's wrong with the youth league as it See, stands? See, around the that world, it's completely different. Around the world, the top clubs in top European, you know, when they hear about a young kid and they hear it at a long, at a lot younger age, right? You might hear a twelve-year-old in the outskirts of this German countryside who who's doing well. You know, eventually it, it gets to the top of some Bundesliga clubs, where the, the head technical director or sporting director finds out about this kid. It just doesn't happen. Enough, I believe, yeah, okay. here in Australia. So what's right. wrong at that youth league level and at the coaching level, Foz? Okay, so the thing about it is the coaches are um, they are professional now. Um, I think um, for the most part they're smart. They've, they've come a long way. So to me, the way they're acting is because of the pressures and the environment that they're in. So, in other words, it's the point is not to criticise the coaches or even necessarily the clubs. The point is to say, this is what the trend is, this is what's happening, and how is it that you can change those pressures, change the environment so they have to act in a different manner or encourage them to do so. So, in other words, if that's the case, if there's not, a, there's not enough war for youth talent, so how do you create an environment where every... A senior coach, every head of football at every A-League and W-League club needs to know uh, every player who's coming through at the state level by the time they hit 14-15, needs to have a full database of who they think is appropriate for their club, needs to really be focusing on it heavily, applying resources. That's what other, te- that's what other countries do. Mm. So, you know, I was watching a, only a few weeks ago a, a youth tournament in Brazil that occurs, I think, in January every year and is seen as one of the um, talent ID moments, and they come together, I think it's under-15s or something, and this is, you can imagine, this is like a, a huge a moment. Yeah, and everyone comes, and there's huge pressure, because they want the players to be under pressure, right? And there's, it's an immense um, moment in the Brazilian football calendar, because this is the next gen, this is where you're going to find a Neymar, okay? Mm. So how do we create that within our environment? Because what that does is that then puts the youth coaches under more pressure. That also gives them uh, more standing in the football community. And all of a sudden you start to change the dynamics. If we don't change the dynamics, you don't change the behaviour. So we, don't, I'm, we may not have the answers here. Um, now what we're doing is raising questions that have to be asked and these answers have to be given. And my point is that we're at a very critical juncture of both the governance of FFA and I think the administration and in some respects maladministration of the A-League over the last 12 years. And we have to learn these lessons now, and you have to solve the problems heading into your next phase. 
whether it's expansion and or the next broadcast deal and so on. You need to make sure every dollar is spent well, spent properly and spent according to solid research. Um, the issue you're talking about, the National Training Centre, is I think over, over many decades that changed between different age groups. However, the, the main issue is that it's been replaced now, I understand, and that funding's been now applied apparently to state-based school environments, uh, one being the Westfield program, which has been existing for three decades, and all of a sudden uh, FFA appear to have nominated that as some type of pilot for this to occur. So I don't know enough about that. Um, that's, that's, it's happened in the past. That's what you'd call a decentralised program, so that the idea is that all of these players are able to stay in their states and go on. The feeling with the AIS that there wasn't enough top players for a state-based program, that you could barely put a squad together at the, in those years. We're talking glory years here. Um, the Viduka generation and so on. I know my brother worked there as a coach for quite a few years at the AIS, uh, and they would say the last two positions of every squad, very with very rare exceptions, um, you know, could have gone to a bunch of players. They weren't at the same level. So they always felt that there was a limited number of very high-quality players who could go on to become internationals. And now what we're doing is saying, well, there's enough in New South Wales, there's enough in Victoria, there's enough here. So that's a, that's a very, very big decision. Huh? Um, I don't know the research and thinking behind it. All I know is that it has been uh, put in place by Eric Abrams. But I would have liked to have that, like this coaching decision, I would have liked to have the rationale for that uh, publicly explained to a much greater degree because it affects us. It affects the future of the game. Um, directly uh, and when we talk about Ben Marwak back to the start of the conversation I think that they are it's, it's, um, it's incumbent on either the technical director or other people at FFA to explain this appointment according to the national direction because you have been espousing a certain direction you've been vocal in doing so and all of a sudden you've just made a massive change it's not enough to say well, we put a committee together and all the guys got together and we all convinced each other that this is a good idea. That is not enough because a country wants to know what is the direction. But the biggest problem now off the back of that, and I completely agree with you, Foz, is that we're not getting any forms of strategy, good governance, structure and leadership from the governing body. When it comes to a myriad of issues that we're facing in the game at the moment, you look at the intervention of FIFA, which we've heard nothing about for the last month. I mean, I know that that... It's coming no up shortly. Well, that November, 30, that November 30 deadline was something that they had espoused was going to be the final nail in the coffin if FFA weren't able to to come to a re resolution with these state bodies. I have it on good authority and I've heard that the state federations, one of them in particular, which I won't name, but they believe that there will be no resolution. They're not going to meet with... They, they have no intention in resolving the current issues with FFA. So you've got a, a disenchanted you know, group of state federations. Fans aren't turning up to games anymore. They're barely tuning in. The game is in a real state and at the governance level, we're not hearing why and we're not hearing plans from them as to what they, they intend on doing to fix it. And that's the big problem, Roods, is that mm. they've gone silent when we need them to be 
loud, when we need them to be vocal and explain their decisions and explain their reasons? Well, nothing new. Nothing new there. Um, I mean, we, we had that... <clears throat> Even with the Ollie Ruse. Yeah, Ollie what Ruse. Did we, what yeah. did we hear off the back of that? You know, another yeah. competition, another disappointment at yeah, that level. Absolutely. I mean, whether it be the national teams, whether it be the A-League, no matter what, um, you know, the, the topic may be. I mean, there was that, you know, the fans. The fans, you know, can't go out there and, and be as engaged as they once were as well, and they're very frustrated about that. I mean, that's what separates our game from all the codes in this country is, is the passion, you know, and the colourfulness and, and everything else that our fans provide and the entertainment that they provide. I mean, you, like, you ask any non football fan out there when they go and attend a game. That's that's one of the real highlights and talking points for them when they walk away. <clears throat> you know, the FFA was sold on that matter uh, a year ago, I remember very clearly. And they did come out and apologise for not co- making comment a lot earlier. And I thought, okay... Too much damage was done at yeah. that point. But, no, but I thought, okay, you've learnt your lesson. You, you decided to stay silent when you shouldn't have. You actually came out and admitted as such... I would have thought moving forward that you would have been on the front foot, particularly with decisions, whether it be about the A-League or the national coaching appointment or anything else. Um, I, I get the feeling that um, you know, the amount of battles that they're wagering and they're, and they're fighting uh, at the moment is too many and they're concentrating on, on just the one war and, and that's, that's the one with FIFA at the moment and it's unfortunate for everybody else. Um, I think uh, there certainly needs to be readjustments and changes made to the governance, uh, particularly involved with our game, because we do branch out into so many different areas as opposed to to other codes that, you know, there certainly needs a change to be had. But during this whole process, a lot's been thrown under the rug. I mean, you know, as Foz mentioned earlier, you know, when you when you, when you put a three man committee, if we're talking about the Socceroos together, is that is that just well, it was a nine man panel overall, well, but then you panel, had three, three former players. Sorry, that's yeah. right. Um, is is that just to appease the, the public and to, to make us feel as though you're doing something, um, or to deflect criticism? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point as well, perhaps. But you know. What, is that panel also there for the A-League? I mean, do these guys, are they also there to try and find out how to better run the competition and in terms of the foreigner quota that we're talking about, adding more players onto the bench? I mean, everywhere in the world you've got six or seven, eight, eight players on the bench and, you know, why do you limit yourself to just four in the A-League? I mean, to have the opportunity or more options for a coach... It's not going to cost you anything extra. Perhaps the travelling might cost you an extra couple of airplane tickets, but really it gives a young player an opportunity to be part of the first-team squad as well. Um, and you, don't, you don't understand the, the confidence that this young kid might, will have by sitting on the bench and being part of the first-team experience travelling away. As we know, it was a real highlight you know, as a 16, 17-year-old going to Melbourne or Adelaide um, and, and playing against these big clubs. Just to be part of it meant a lot. You know, why are we restricting that to just four you know, players on the bench? I mean, there are so many things. Uh, and so many ideas out there, but who's actually... There are so many fo- you know, smart football people out there who've got the experience in the game, who've played the game, coached the game, have been involved in it. Have you asked for their advice? You know, right now we're just limiting ourselves to only a couple, right? So, And that you know, also feeds into the opportunities available for coaches. Both of you, you've completed your licences, you've coached. Mm. Where are your frustrations? <laughs> Where do they lie? In terms of opportunities available, in terms of education, in terms of progressing, what are the main issues for you before we wrap up? Well, I, I would sort of speak on behalf of 
you know, a lot of them who've come through the pro licence and the A licence, but I think all of them would agree that we need to increase the number of opportunities in the country. And the reason we need to do that is because um, we have to provide pathways for coaches and we have to... Um, well, there's a number of other ones. I mean, look, the, the cost of all the coaching licenses is extremely high relative to what most of those coaches are going to be able to go do. I remember having the argument with uh, Han Berger, uh, and I said to him, Han, it can't possibly be, I don't know, whatever it is, um, might be $9,000, um, something like that, to go through the pro licence, I think, or something, and um, three or four for the earlier licences and so on. You can't possibly... And that's per licence. Per licence, yeah. So I, three, um, three is probably nine. Yeah, it's probably about from sixteen to 18000 off the top of my head, something like that, to go all, through all, all of the licences. I'll yeah. tell you now exactly. I paid yep. 32000 for my 32. C licence. Yeah, my, the first... What, did you redo it three times? Or? <laughs> well, yeah, no. Well, the, first, <laughs> the first one the first one in 2010 was yeah. 5500 It was wow. a 14-day C licence course. I sat on there with Jamie Harnwell, Ufuk Talade, Lord yeah. of It was all ex-players, and it was the first pro C licence of its kind. Okay. Okay. So, you know, we understood the reasons as to why um, it was so expensive, but 14 days in yeah. Canberra, yeah. you know, being fed and having accommodation yeah. and obviously the education, Kelly Cross took that. Um, then the B licence shortly afterwards. Yeah. Um, and then the A licence over two parts. And, you know, from my experience, I wasn't attached to a football club or federation that paid for, for my. Yeah. Uh, licenses. So I, I paid it all on my own. I was, but I was very fortunate with my time, and I was very fortunate that I was. If that's something that I was really passionate about, and wanted to do, and, and had yeah. the ability to go and do that as well. But also in a financial mm. position to be able to pay that's true. for that. Because very true. What, that's right. You know, when you consider that there would be a lot of coaches who would be just right. as passionate and yeah. just yeah. as yeah. ambitious, not, I'm not as, nowhere yeah. near as filthy rich as Rude. Yeah. 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 Apparently, you after this, son. So the thing is, so what Berger said, I said to him, you can't do this because. Um, m- the vast majority of those coaches, if you tracked them and did, did a bit of little bit of research, you'd say where which jobs are they going to? The vast majority of them are not in the professional game. Obviously, um, that may well be two percent of them. Let's say so. Ninety eight percent of them are going into jobs which are paying, let's say, between four and fifteen thousand dollars, and that's being generous in this country. Yep. So the, you're charging them, um, let's say, $12,000 minimum to at least get to their A licence, and then they're going to a job that's paying them $6,000. It's not possible. Firstly, what you're doing is limiting the number of people. You're limiting because of the financial means. So like our academies with play, play, players paying, all of a sudden a number of people can't do it. So you're limiting the amount of talent that's going to come through. So it doesn't 20, make any sense. $2,400 for that's an right. under five... Child yeah, yeah, in yeah. Queensland at yeah. an academy. Yeah, under five. Under five. Oh, yeah, 100%. $2,400. Well Often is more. And even for a 12, 13 year old who's in an A League environment, oh, usually it will be that, right? Mm. But so what, is cost killing our game too, Foz? And use of development, etc. Of course. Talking about it forever. But so the, why won't they change that? But just, can I just finish that, please? Sure. Because what, what Berger said was important. Han said to me, yes, but if you go and um, study a law degree, then in university, that's going to cost you $30,000. So what's the difference? This is a professional course. No, I said, well, the difference is I'm going to get a job as a lawyer. That's right. 
right? And you've got the consistent you're work starting. potentially for 30 years and you've got the potential up to 10 years to be earning half okay. a million, two million dollars, whatever the case may be. Big difference, I, I agree. I think what he, where he's coming from, Foz, is the fact that a profession's a profession. And one of the key things, the key messages from Han, yeah, which yeah. I really like yeah, no, was... No, I agree with that. Yeah, That's yeah, fine. Yeah. That's fine. But going back to, you know, unfortunately there are just so many ex-players who have had different careers to the generation prior to us, where we, our current generation, have played a lot of football overseas and we've taken in, you know, all kinds of di- different, um, you know, traits from, from certain coaches, whereas prior to that, a lot of those guys had careers only in Australia, only had, you know, the coaching experience from, from those over here. So you're talking about the Aloysius, the Muskets, you know, the Popoviches and all these guys, the Ocons who have had, you know, some real broad experiences with, with great coaches throughout their careers and they're using that now and have got a platform to do so in the A-League. But as far as you mentioned, there are so many underneath that and we've gone through the licences together. We did our pro together, our mm-hmm. A-licence together. Mm-hmm. There were some fantastic coaches out there just not given the opportunity who have to go and, and really work hard. And I'm, I'm glad I cut my teeth in the NPL, I will say that. It was mm-hmm. probably the best experience that I've had um, and it really allows you to, to, to be much better, better prepared. But it's another reason why I believe we need to have a second-tier competition, a professional one. Sure. That it's, it just allows and it gives you more of a reason as a coach to go through this because it took us six yeah. years to, 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 yeah, to, the opportunity yeah. to, to get to your pro, pro license. Yeah. It's a long time. And I'm, I'm glad we both did it because it does make you better in, in certain mm. aspects. But, again, it's just a, a, a lack of opportunity, unfortunately, mm. in this country, whereby we've only got 10 professional low-league clubs. And if you're not a, a, attached to those, you're either mm. then in federations, um, and that's fine too, but, you know, Mm. It's not like you. So the experiences between both, you know, young coaches coming through and young players isn't all that dissimilar. It's the consistent theme is that there is a lack of opportunity. Foz and costly and very costly, which Mm. seems to be a big problem. But just just on that, you were talking about the Canberra one, and I also did several in Canberra. What they did subsequently was decentralise the licences because people complained and they said, "Okay, you can do it at Football New South Wales over a number of weekends." They improved it. That's right. Okay, that that improved. However, they're still. are costly, and the FFA annually makes a profit on the coaching licences, which I've philosophically never agreed with. Right, yes. didn't know that. Okay. No, they used to say it's cost recovery. No, we just, you know, we have to employ staff and we do it. That's not the case. They've been they've been making in the past a profit on the licences. So clearly, the CEOs wanted it to be a, a revenue generating okay. area, which is completely wrong. That's Why? a disgrace. Is because we need the best talent at the cheapest. And, and most efficient manner to be educated and give them the best opportunity to earn a living, be incentivised towards excellence and become a full professional coach uh, uh, as best we can. And that's your underlying principles and we simply haven't... We've churned a lot of people through licences, massive, thousands and thousands and thousands, but they don't have anywhere to go and that's what needs to be looked at. One final thing to wrap up, and it's a big question to have to answer to then wrap up on. With all the issues that we've discussed today, and we could continue to go on, what needs addressing first and foremost, Rudes? Hmm. Um, Yeah. You had to come to me first, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, I'm very, you know, I, I still think our domestic competition is what, everything is built upon, right? I think it leads 
everything underpinning that um, and everything above that as well. So you look at development and then you look at World Cups and, and, and Socceroos. So if we get that right, it, it does it does help um, you know both parties a, a lot. So oh, look, I'm, I'm very passionate on, on expansion. I, I think we really need to give more opportunities to players and to coaches. Um, yeah, I think uh, the fans are ready for it as well. Um, I, you know, I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest problem that um, that you know, I guess um, in our game at the moment. If we can address that, and it doesn't have to just necessarily be two. You know, I mean, it could be more. There are so many people out there, potential investors, who have the funding, who have the areas, who have uh, you know the, the, everything underpinned uh, and ready to 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 fire away. I think that's probably the biggest issue. Falls. Just before I answer that, I am involved in one of the expansion bids, as everyone knows, and therefore, you know, I spoke about expansion before. Obviously, I have a vested interest there, and so a potential conflict. Um, however, I didn't push, um, you know, that specific bid, um, and all I did was say that I think most of the community realises that expansion needs to occur to provide more opportunities, particularly for the youth players and coaches and so on. So. Um, to answer your question, I, I think it's straightforward. The, um, we have huge problems in the... I, I'm actually extremely worried about the game at the moment. I'm, more, I'm as worried, if not more worried, or I'm as worried as what I was 18 years ago um, because the other sports have responded in a way that the governors of our sport clearly haven't seen coming. Uh, we're in a much more competitive sports environment than only three years ago, let alone five or ten. Um, I don't believe that we have the strategies to um, to respond to those challenges. Um, and I think the game has stagnated, stagnated in many ways. The uh, Asian Cup in 2015 was squandered. Um, the strategy for the A-League going forward was clearly not in place and should have been prior to that. Um, and the thing that really worries me is the decisions, all of this uh, Congress issues and, and what's occurring now really won't manifest itself for another two, three years. That's what worries me. In two years' time, I think we're going to be really concerned. So the reason for stating that context is I think it's the governance and management of the game that's the most important factor right now. We, we lack strategy. We lack unity that people have talked about a lot. We, have, we are as fractured currently as we potentially have ever been. Uh, and I think much of that unrest is absolutely right uh, and it should be in place. I think that Stephen Lowy and his board have demonstrated that they've lost all confidence of the major stakeholders. I think the treatment of the professional game has been nothing short of a disgrace. I think several of the states have done a fabulous job, and that's Victoria and New South Wales, in siding with the professional game and the players, and I think they're absolutely correct in calling for a major change, not just of um, representation at, at Congress and Constitution level, and finally, actually, let's face it, taking it out of the hands of the Lowy family. But more to that, um, having a, a, an overhaul of the governance and governors of the game. I think that this board has to be seriously questioned, along with Stephen. I think he was put in a situation by his, uh, by his father, which he's shown clearly that he's not capable of managing. Um, and that's manifest reality uh, for all of the squealing and carrying on. It's only damaging the game now. 
And uh, I think actually he should say, look, if I'm a true lover of the game, I have lost the, the, the faith of all the stakeholders. I've demonstrated I'm not capable of keeping people together unless it's through bullying and intimidation, which has been the modus operandi of that organisation, uh, both um, you know, for quite a considerable amount of time. And um, I think we need serious change uh, at the governance and board level in order to bring people together, in order to create better strategies, in order to um, uh, respond to significant challenges that are around, in order to create better understanding around all of the issues, uh, the technical issues um, and the strategic issues. And I don't believe the people managing the game at that level currently have or are capable of finding the answers that we need. What an answer to end on. Mm. Craig Foster, Marco Rudan, mm. bravo. Well done today. Okay. I think we've covered Pleasure. some really fantastic issues. Um, well, not fantastic issues. I think we've covered some issues fantastically, should I say. And, um, and we very much enjoy putting together these special edition podcast series here on the World Game. We will be coming to you more often, obviously, now that the, the game is in such a state of flux and the issues are coming through thick and fast. So it's always a pleasure to have two great minds being able to analyse it, dissect and discuss Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, listeners. Until next time, though, on behalf of myself and the entire team here at the World Game, it's goodbye for now.